Oh, I'm excited. Okay, in three, two, one. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Backstage with BHSC, the official podcast for the Bachelor of Health Sciences program at McMaster University. I'm your host for today. My name is Haram, and we're joined by the assistant dean of the program, Stacey Ritz. Hi, Haram. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, of course. It's been a long time coming to have the <laughs> podcast start up. Uh, it's something we've been kind of scheming for the last couple months, I think. And so yeah. it's exciting to see it starting to kick off. And today's episode is, I think, something that we both initially gestured towards, which is the fact that there are so many different myths that HealthSci is kind of entrenched in across mm -hmm online in terms of reddit instagram tiktok anywhere you can think of but also in person the amount of things that we tend to hear day to day where it kind of makes us pause and go well i don't know how true that is so today is kind of a day to clear the air and for anyone who's listening these are questions that and thoughts that people have sent in to us about admissions into health side and we're going to play a funnel game of mythbusters but admission style our first one leading in which is the one that I think we've both heard the most is that getting in to HealthSci is a lottery the entire way through. Yeah. I mean, I there are so many things that I have seen on the internet in different places about our admissions process that are just totally wrong <laughs> um, or some things that are partly wrong and lots of things that are totally wrong and made up. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of interesting to see and, and try and understand where some of those things come from. And yeah, this is one of them that I've heard too, is that it's totally a lottery or that uh, once you have an idea above, it's just a lottery or it's all based on the sub app, mm. some kind of a formula, blah, blah, blah. Lots of people have speculated about it. Um, and it's not, it's not really meant to be a secret. Um, it's just... I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about how it works and a lot of information that is out in popular media about the program that um, people misinterpret. So I think one of the one of the things that I've seen misinterpreted a lot, and this has come up in like a bunch of news stories over the years where, you know, somebody will say, you know, I had a 99% average and I didn't get into HealthSci. Uh, and that shows up in a big newspaper or on a major news website or something like that. And then people mm -hmm. interpret that as meaning, well, if you want to get into HealthSci, you have to have better than a 99, which is not true at all. It's a, it's a misunderstanding <laughs> and misinterpretation of the process, but I can understand why people have that misunderstanding. So um, yeah, like I'm happy to sort of flesh out why that's a myth. Um, and hopefully clarify a bunch of things so that people have misunderstandings about our admissions process. So, um, yeah, so most people who've looked at the HealthSite program know that we base our admission decisions on both a supplementary application score and your grades. And it's the grades for uh, your grade 12 courses and six particular grade 12 courses, not all your grade 12 courses. Mm -hmm. um, and And both of those things factor into our decision the way that it's actually that it actually works <laughs> um so we have you know people submit their supplementary application answers and those are scored by a pool of our fourth year students our instructors our staff 
so people who are very familiar with the program and have a really good understanding of the kind of diversity of students in the program and the kinds of sensibilities that indicate somebody's likely to thrive in the program or respond particularly well to the opportunities in the program. And so each question is scored by two different people and it's totally blind. They don't see any identifying information or anything like that. And they submit a score from zero to seven for each answer. And uh, once all of those, all of that scoring is done, the first step is that I just take those raw scores and I have the spreadsheet flag for me anytime that the two reviewers uh, were in significant disagreement with one another. So if those scores mm -hmm. are, are different by more than two or three points, I have the spreadsheet flag it for me. Um, and then we go back and we have another look at those uh, questions where the, where the two reviewers were in discrepancy with one another and, and have another score to resolve that discrepancy. Um, and that happens surprisingly rarely. When you think that in the last few years, we've had 6,500, almost 7,000 applicants for the last three years, each writing two questions. Um, the number that's, that's, you know, 13,000, 14,000 questions. Goodness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's only about 200 or so where there's a disparity where we have to go back and flag it. So that's a pretty small fraction. So our, even though the scoring is subjective, um, the fact that our, our reviewers are, are in such close agreement with each other that much of the time, I think, indicates that it's is rigorous. There's inter-rater reliability and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our first step. And once we've resolved, and it also, I mean, people often are worried, like, oh, what if, what if one of the reviewers really hated what I wrote? Um, is that going to sink my application? It doesn't. Because if one of them really hated it and gave you a terrible score, um, and the other one thought it was fine, that's going to be enough to generate another look at it. So um, it's mm -hmm. I think that, that's pretty reassuring. Um, and we look for other kinds of anomalies in the data too. Um, and then once we have done all that resolution, then we take the entire group of applicants and we sort them from the highest SEPAP score to the lowest SEPAP scores. And then I do some math to calculate percentile groupings. And I start to break the, the whole group down into clusters. Um, and typically, uh, I'll create four clusters based on SUPAP score that are at the top of the list. And then a mm -hmm. fifth cluster um, based on uh, that contains the lower SUPAP scores. And then for each of those top clusters, we set a GPA cutoff. So hmm. for applicants whose sub-app score is in the very, very top cluster, the, the cutoff GPA in that top cluster is 90. So in that top cluster, anybody with a GPA of 90 or above gets an offer of admission. Then I move to mm -hmm. the second cluster of sub-app scores. These are still very, very strong sub-app scores, but slightly lower. And we set a GPA cutoff for that cluster. And that's usually in the low 90s, 92, 93. So it depends from year to year in the distributions of scores and that sort of thing, but something in the low 90s. We move to the third cluster. Again, also, these are still very good, very strong sub-app scores. <laughs> uh, and set a cutoff there. It's usually in the mid 90s. And then the fourth cluster, we set a, a cutoff and that cutoff is usually in the high 90s. Um, 
And then below that fourth cluster, uh, there are no offers. So that's how it works. It's very rational and uh, mathematical. Um, it's not a lottery, uh, both the sub app score and the GPA factor in, but um, it is not as simple as, you know, a, a an average of the two. And it also explains why there are plenty of people with 98, 99, even 100 who uh, who don't get an offer of admission to the program because they weren't in one of those top SOPAP score clusters. Um, it doesn't mean that the whole, that the, the GPA doesn't matter. The GPA does matter because that defines the cutoff point in each cluster. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> But uh, it is entirely possible, and in fact, most people uh, with even those very, very, very high GPAs will not get an offer of admission to the program. Uh, it's just the reality of, of a huge, talented applicant pool and a, and a limited number of spots. One of the main things I've noticed as a student on the other end of it is a lot of us still have that kind of imposter syndrome coming into it <laughs> first year yeah. and even throughout because we're so used to hearing things like, you know, your best friend who had a 99 didn't get in and you with like a 92 did. And it's yeah. always like a bit of a mental check to realize, oh my God, but that it speaks to how well you wrote or how much you really are a fit for the program relative to someone else. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is imposter syndrome is is very common among high achievers in general, and that is by and large our applicant pool. So I think we're <laughs> as a group and I, you know, I, I was a pretty high achiever myself as a student. So I count myself like it, it, it's a pretty common phenomenon within this group in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it comes up a lot. You know, students come into first year and they've been accepted and they have a 92 or something like that. And I think sometimes they tend to think, oh, I must have just barely got in. I must have just squeaked in by the, you know, by the skin of my mm -hmm. teeth. I just barely got in because I had a 92. Um, but actually, if you think about how that decision making process works, if you got an offer of admission with a 92 average, that means your SUP app was right at the very top. Like in a very yeah. top group, you didn't squeak in. You didn't squeak in. You got in on the strength of a, an incredibly strong sub app. Um, the people who are kind of on the bubble, right at that that cutoff point where I have to say, okay, this person's getting an offer and this one isn't, those are mm -hmm. in the fourth cluster. And and by definition, we're setting the cutoff there at, at you know, 96, 97, 98 sometimes. So uh, it's it's actually... Uh, by the way that we do it, it's actually the people at the very high end who might be the ones who barely got in. <laughs> um, but at any rate, I mean, the thing is, again, we have had we have so many applicants to this program that in order to get an offer of admission, you have to have a strong sub app. You cannot get into mm -hmm. this program with a weaker sub app. Um, uh, and having a strong SUP app will make up for having a, a, GP, a GPA that is lower, but it doesn't work the other way around. A super high GPA can't make up for a weak SUP app, uh, but that doesn't mean the GPA doesn't count. It does. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people will come and ask current students what makes a good SUP app too. And you kind yeah. of look at them and you're like, I have no idea. <laughs> Like, I could not tell you if you asked me. It does not make any sense to me for that question. And it's always like, it's like, I just work your hardest and like present who you are. That's really all yeah. you can offer. And I imagine you probably yeah. field a lot of those too. Oh, tons like of time, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We get those like, how do I write a, if the sub app is so important? How do I write a good sub app? And and people, I think, often relate to it as if there's a particular way to write a good sub. Tell me the way to do it. And the fact is, uh-huh. there are so many ways to write a good sub app. Um, uh, that there, there is no one single recipe. There's no one single kind of criterion or or characteristic that that makes us up a sub app good it can be any number of things um you know sometimes like i mean i've read thousands of these over the years and the mm-hmm. ones that stand out and the ones that jump out jump out for different reasons um sometimes it's somebody who has a really unique idea and a really unique take on the question that we haven't seen before um but it might not be particularly well written but it might be just really a compelling idea uh, or a novel mm. idea. Um, some people take, some people have ideas that are, or, you know, responses that aren't particularly novel, but they've just expressed themselves in a particularly um, engaging way or used an example that was really compelling for some reason. Um, sometimes people are very creative and they'll write poetry or rap <laughs> and that is very effective. Mm-hmm. I've also seen people, I've also seen people do that and it's not very effective, you know, like um, there is no, recipe for this um and so my uh, my recommendation to applicants when they are writing their sub apps is the best way to write a good sub app is to write it from your your real heart from your your authentic point of view mm-hmm. um you know people say what are you looking for <laughs> and i'll say to applicants if you catch yourself thinking about these questions from that point of view what are they looking for i ask you to stop and go back and and reframe and say, what do I have to say? And there's any number of ways to to do that. I mean, I think the the crucial thing is to, you know, to be authentic, um, to speak from who you are. That's that's what makes a a great sub app. And and who we are, (laughs) we're a very diverse group. The applicants are a diverse group. Our class is a diverse group. Who each person is, is very diverse. And so what that looks like in terms of the sub app is also very diverse. I'll even say if there are any future applicants who are listening or any students in the past who are now in the program, something that I always harp on, even when I'm doing work now, is not looking at what other people have done and modeling based off of that. Like when I was writing my SUP app, I quite literally would not speak to anyone who I also knew was applying about it. I refused to. I would only speak to friends who had were applying to different programs or you know, we're already in university or something. And that helped me not focus on things like different types of formatting. Like I knew plenty of people who did unique formatting and that didn't work out for them. And I just wrote as myself. And I, I mean, I'm here now. So clearly that worked to some extent. I know that I've heard that too, that people, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, can I see you? you got into the program? So can I see your sub app? Because you must have done mm-hmm. the thing. And if I do the same thing, <laughs> then I have a really good chance of getting into the program. And I think that's, I think that's misguided. Um, I think, um, again, because it is, there isn't one way <laughs> to write a good sub app. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and trying to model your thoughts and your ideas and your, your vision on someone else's vision is going to dilute your vision. (laughs) It's going to, it's going to take away from really speaking uh, to your own 
perspective, to your view, to your experience, to the things that matter to you. And the things that matter to you as the applicant are the things that, that are going to be most compelling. When we design the prompts, we're thinking about, you know, what will elicit the kinds of information that would be useful for us to evaluate an applicant and what will we be interested in reading. But we're also thinking mm -hmm. about what might be really exciting for people. Like, well, we want it to be an interesting process. We want it to be a catalyst for, for you know, interesting ideas to emerge. Um, and so we're hoping that our applicants will get excited by the prompts and then tell us what they're excited about. <laughs> I will say, even as a current student, they're doing a great job because I will read through the current ones or I'll read through past ones and I'll bring them up in discussions with friends of mine who are in the program now. And it always lends itself to like an hour or two of pure like disagreement on what you think or <laughs> like just like pure all out war sometimes about how we think about this question. So, hey, if you I mean if you're ever stuck in a conversation might be good to pull one of the old prompts yeah, out. Good here. conversation. <laughs> one yeah, if you those, really can't. Table those card games, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, after like 30 years of just BHSC questions, people are going to use that to prep their children. Never mind. That's <laughs> okay. I, I often think too, like if I'm reading a book and I, I come across a quote or I'm watching TV or something like that, like my brain is always on the lookout for like something that would make a great sub question. So it's not unusual. Mm -hmm. I, have a, I, have a, I have a note in my phone that's just like, anytime I come across something, I'm like, oh, that could be a really good prompt for a sub question. Um, something we discussed, and I'd love for us to kind of voice out here, was how we landed on the current structure for the sub app that we have now. Yeah. I mean, so when the, when the program started, um, the initial assistant dean of the program himself was pretty uh had a pretty and I share with I share a pretty critical perspective about grades and what grades meant um mm -hmm. and, and you know a lot of undergraduate admissions um make make admissions decisions purely on grades um and his name his name was Del Harnish mm -hmm. so Del Del had a very critical view of what grades could tell us about about a person's suitability, uh, about what a person was like, about what it said about their intelligence and their ability. Um, that, that grades are a very, very imperfect um, measure for any of those mm -hmm. things. And so felt strongly that our decisions about admission to the BHSC program should not be based only on grades. So that's why we have a sub app at all. At the time, it was quite unusual for a program to have, a, an undergraduate program to have a sub app. Um, and the questions were initially designed to give applicants an opportunity to tell us more about who they were and what was important to them um, uh, than, than the grades alone could tell us. And that has stuck throughout. Um, I think for a long time, the approach to putting together the SUP app was probably a little more idiosyncratic than it is now. I think it was just, you know, fun ideas of questions that might be uh, interesting <laughs> Uh, and there was often a question that was just like, use this space to tell us whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And we haven't done that. We don't do, we haven't done that in a long time now. And there's a few reasons why. When when I uh, stepped into the role after after Dell was finished his terms um, and started being responsible for the sub app, I, I took a little bit more of a, a constructed or a, a, a deliberate uh, process to putting together the sub app and really wanted to uh, have three types of questions, three types of things we were eliciting. So we try and, and develop questions that are on the SUP app. Uh, one type 
gives applicants an opportunity to tell us something about who they are, what their character mm -hmm. is, who they are as people. And another type of question um, that allows applicants to tell us about the things they're interested in, the kinds of questions they have, the kinds of problems they want to solve. Um, and then a third type of question that asks applicants to grapple with ambiguity. Usually we give them some kind of data um, and ask them to interpret that data, make a decision based on that data, generate a hypothesis, but they have to make sense of data that's ambiguous and imperfect. Um, and, and kind of, to, you know, to give applicants an opportunity to show us how do you grapple with incompleteness, ambiguity, ambivalence, and still be able to say something meaningful. So our sub-app questions usually fit into one of those three bins. Uh, and we've mm -hmm. also introduced more opportunity for applicants to have some, cho some choice. It used to be there were three questions everybody answered the same three questions the last bunch of years there's usually like question one option a or b question two option a or b so applicants have a little bit more latitude to be like you know what i'm way more excited about option a than i am about option b or you know i don't really want to mm -hmm. talk about the things that option a has i would rather talk about the things in option b so we, we offer some more choice um and the other piece is we don't tend to have those on oh those very open-ended questions tell us tell us you tell us whatever you want uh, and that's partly because um the kind there was a tendency with those that people not everybody but many applicants would use that space to sort of list their achievements tell us about mm. all the clubs they were president and all the awards they had won that sort of thing um and and i think we, we wanted to move away from that because we, 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 we didn't want it this to be about um, the, the kinds of things that not everyone has equal access to. You know, not every school has the same opportunity for joining clubs, different kinds of activities. Not every city or town has the same volunteer uh, opportunities. Not every... Mm -hmm in any setting has the same access to financial resources or or support at home that would allow them to to undertake really you know flashy impressive kinds of experiences so uh we really wanted to downplay uh the, that kind of thing because it kind of introduced a an element of of inequity uh and mm -hmm. so we've away from from that and even in the questions that we design we we do try and think about um not writing questions that sort of just invite people to tell us about their achievements. Sometimes people do say, hey, you know, this question, that my experience as president of this club is relevant to answering this question. And they, yeah, they, yeah. And that's totally fine. Um, but we, we, we don't ask deliberately explicitly about those things. For sure. I think in general, the whole thing with this myth is that it really isn't a lottery and it isn't a fair way to write off the program by kind of claiming that it is because there's so much methodical process background steps that happen that we don't even see and also yeah. the reason why it takes until may to give out yeah. final offers also yeah, it now fun. makes sense because <laughs> you're just yeah. working through so many um yeah. so i think just moving on from that one another one that came up that i thought was super interesting this year was Focusing on the fact that we now have a lot of generative AI and we have a lot of third-party writers coming in. And so we've kind of touched on this, but 
the myth would be that BHSC doesn't know about or isn't doing anything to control oh, for <laughs> those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we absolutely know about it. Um, and you know, generative, <laughs> generative AI is definitely a new, uh, a new twist on this, a new angle on this. But you know, the, the issue of third-party writers and hired writers and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's that's not just an issue for BHSE. Uh, mm -hmm. That's, I mean, I think that probably goes back decades <laughs> to in any any program uh, mm -hmm. that asks people to write something as part of their application process. There's always been a, a black market or a, a you know. A, dark side of, of admissions <laughs> consulting black market bhsc yeah right? you're right <laughs> uh, that um that has provided these kinds of services um and it, it, it is a, a really um thorny problem for for any any program uh, mm -hmm. including medicine including lots of other programs um that that use written applications um and it, it's it's is not an easy one to solve right like even mm -hmm even when we might suspect that somebody has done that, it's very difficult to prove. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we do have evidence, we do follow up the evidence and we do uh, take action accordingly. But I mean, that evidence is very, very difficult to come by. Um, it's not a problem. I mean, part of the reason I'm not super worried about it is partly because there's so little we can do about it. We do Fair. see... People draw uh, to our attention all the time. They will send us an email and say, hey, did you know about this company? They'll send us the website that is offering these services. And we, mm -hmm. you know, we follow up with the university legal and we have, you know, we, the university legal will go to these, uh, um, these companies and, and exert our legal rights. Now, I mean, mm -hmm. we have a legal right to stop them from doing it, but we do have a legal right to limit the ways that they can talk about McMaster University and they can talk about the program. Fair, yeah. And 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 that sort of thing. So, you know, we do we do follow up with that. But again, we don't have any any legal recourse to stop them from from offering it at all. Um, mm -hmm. But uh yeah, so it, it's definitely a frustration. At the same time, when I have read so many of these applications, and like I said, there are so many ways to write a great SAP app that I, I just think it's wasted money for people to spend money. Agreed. Like, you know what? You, you don't need to have a perfect, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's not about perfection. It's not about the most brilliant, polished, um, deeply insightful. You know, it's, it's about those flashes of realness and and true insight into someone's character that, that really stand out. And it comes in lots of different ways. And some of the most impressive sub app responses that I've read you know uh, they they read most of them read like they were written by 17 year olds you know like they they, <laughs> they, they don't um, seem out of step with, with with that and you know when we see our students in a program very few very few I, I, every now and then there's somebody who's in the program and I'm like oh you might you might have been somebody who <laughs> ah yeah yeah <laughs> but it, but it's very rare it's very rare mm -hmm. um you know most of our students performance indicates that they do indeed have those kinds of abilities um and then the, most recently with chat gpt we actually had an opportunity to run a bit of a test um mm -hmm. 
because ChatGPT kind of went active in November, I think November, late fall anyways, and mm-hmm. after we had posted our SUP app questions for the year and I got a little nervous and I thought, well, what if, what if our applicants are using ChatGPT? Um, and so we decided to see what ChatGPT would do with our SUP app. And so we put the questions into ChatGPT and I asked ChatGPT to generate a bunch of answers um, to our prompts. And then we took a bunch of these answers and created some fake applicants um, that, we put, <laughs> that we put into our scoring system. Uh, we didn't tell any of our scorers about it. We just put, uh, I think, 10 or 15 fake applicants. I don't know, I think it was 20 fake applicants into Beautiful. the system and, and had, had them scored um, and brought them back. And I have to say, that the day that we went to analyze that data, I was a little nervous. <laughs> um, but uh, it turns out that although ChatGPT produces very lovely polished writing, and it was very thoughtful insights they they didn't get high scores they got very media they didn't get low scores but they got very mm-hmm. mediocre scores none of our chat gpt fake applicants would have gotten an offer to the program not even close um <laughs> and when i when i looked at them i realized why um they're beautifully written um but they are vague impersonal mm-hmm. um you know very abstract and high level and that is not how most of our applicants write. Our applicants speak mm-hmm. to their experience. They speak to their values. This is why this is meaningful to me. This is how this relates to my life. ChatGPT doesn't do that at all. And and <laughs> and it, it, even though they're technically good, um, they they weren't the kinds of things that are have that human character. <laughs> that is what that what is what our <laughs> our our. Um, our our scores respond to. So uh, I felt really uh, reassured, relieved, <laughs> uh, but also gratified that I think uh, it, it definitely helped us feel more confident, feel confident that the, the kinds of questions we're asking are, are eliciting the kinds of things that are not easily replicated by, uh, certainly by AI. And I, I even might go so far as to say it would be very difficult for someone to write for a third party. Um, in a convincing yeah. way. I also, when we were discussing this the first time, the who question, did it get, yeah. st- it got stuck on that, right? Like, oh yeah. <laughs> so this past year, this was one of my favorite, uh, this past year, one of the questions on our supplementary application was based on uh, something that arose out of uh, the student musical every year that Bachelor of Health Sciences students put on a BHSC musical. And mm-hmm. so this past year, the, the the plot of the musical had um, the central driving force in the plot was that uh, the program had asked the students to to undertake a particular task, and it was to just answer the question, who? No further context, no further information, no further instructions, just who? And the rest of the, the musical was about the students trying to figure out what they do with that. Um, and so the sub app mm-hmm. question was, okay, this was this was the premise of the show. So now we're going to turn that question over to you, the applicants, who? And when we fed <laughs> that into ChatGPT, ChatGPT was just like, I have no idea <laughs> what you're asking. <laughs> I don't know what the BHSC program is. I don't know what the musical is. I I can't answer. It wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> so as we're developing this year, we're like, okay, let's see if ChatGPT can even make heads or tails of this in the first place. Yeah, that was fun. That's um, so fun to see. I'd love to see it. Like the fact that it either loses its mind or it goes full 
philosophical with yeah. it and yeah. just doesn't know how to come back around to answer the question properly. Amazing. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing when I think about this idea of, you know, the integrity of people in an admissions process or mm-hmm. in, in just academic integrity in general, you know, that people feel whatever, whatever drives them to cheat, to fake their way in, like whatever, whatever it is that's driving you to that, um, you know, mm-hmm. there's no way that any system, BHSE or any other system is going to be able to shut that down completely. Um, yeah. But on a sort of broader philosophical level, I, I feel like at the end of the day, the people who are are doing that are really largely doing a, a disservice only to themselves. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if, you have to, if you have to do, especially as a learner, I mean, the whole point mm-hmm. of coming to university is to learn. And if if you're going to come to university not to learn, <laughs> if you're going to come to university to just fake your way through it somehow, why are you even here? Um, uh, you're not actually getting what university can give you if you engage with it authentically and so mm-hmm. it's not that I don't care uh, I know that there are probably some applicants who are getting in who have not engaged with the process honestly and that does bother me but um, there's a level at which I think well it's 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 doing that individual the largest disservice they have they haven't truly engaged with and understood what it is that this process is for and how they can how they can benefit from it and ultimately mm-hmm. that's a detriment to themselves if you if you had to like cheat your way in you're probably not even gonna like it here <laughs> exactly that's it's, my point yeah it's like, like you're probably not even gonna join yourself here because that mm-hmm. it, you know it's it, yeah like it, it just seems like such a such a silly thing to do to yourself on so many, on so many levels no I entirely agree with you and I think it's usually coming from a place of feeling like it's gonna like this is the logical next step for them and then after this yeah. it's something else that they're trying to just build towards and this is kind of the middle yeah. stepping stone region yeah. for them I mean I think that's it I mean I think if you see it as a means to some other end and you don't mm-hmm. see it as valuable in itself, you're probably more likely to do that. Um, but again, I, I would say the same thing about any any educational undertaking is if you don't see value in the thing itself, in, in the process along the way, only as a means to some other end, I, I would deeply question whether or not that you're you're really um you're really should be in that space and whether you're actually gonna get out of it what you what you could get out of it you're you're going to miss a lot of potential for growth and learning and insight and development as a human being if you're just seeing it as a stepping stone to something else you're missing a lot yeah that is pretty much leading us into our next myth because it (laughs) aligns so well with it which is the fact that bhsc in itself is a useless degree unless you're Uh using it as a ticket to graduate school so right. including med school, including anything else. And this will be a separate episode on its own too, but I'd love if okay. we just talk about it briefly because it totally speaks to what you're saying right now. Yeah, I've seen this places too where people are like, well, you can't do anything with a BHSC degree. It's, it's pointless. 
I mean, yeah, obviously, I see that, or it's obviously, like straight obviously, tickets. yeah, obviously, I think that is a myth. Um, and part, <laughs> I mean, part of the reason I I know it's a myth, I know it's a myth, is because I see, I see students, we see students, all you know, instructors, staff, you know, our instructors, mm-hmm. many of our instructors have been here since the beginning of the program, um, and. And we are engaged and care about what we do because we know it's important. We know it's valuable. We know it's not useless. Mm-hmm. We see it. We see it. We see the transformations. We see the the growth um, that uh, that that arises from. I mean, I think we some of the things we do in BHC in particular around inquiry and that sort of thing develop and emphasize certain kinds of skill sets but i would say it's true more broadly around universities is um mm-hmm. there's no i don't think there's any such thing as a useless degree unless you as a student don't really engage with it i mean i think any process that you engage that you undertake but don't engage with is probably is probably useless mm-hmm. um agreed but um i think i know that there is so much scope within the bhsc program for skill development, um, for knowledge development, and for you know personal growth that brings people to a place of higher skill, higher knowledge, higher engagement, higher agency in the world mm-hmm. to be able to go out into the world and do something. You know, when I think about what I think a lot of our inquiry-based courses do and a lot of that skill development does, that is... I don't want to say completely unique. I don't want to say there's, you know, you don't, you don't get any of this any other way, but I think it emphasizes and foregrounds and, and people leave this program with a sense of being able to do things, but not just do, uh, you know, a particular thing they're trained for. I think it, it gives people the sense of potential and possibility to walk into a situation, to walk into a problem, to walk into a workplace and say, what are the important questions here? What are the key problems here? And feel empowered to be able to do something about it without waiting for somebody to come along and say, here's your job. Here's what you need to do. Here's the checklist. Go down the checklist and then you'll do it. I think that inquiry-based approach um, really develops people's sense of self-efficacy and agency and collaboration um, that gives them the confidence to be able to do stuff now it's a health degree so a lot of the a lot of the stuff that uh, a lot of the knowledge and the content that is built around that and program develops health knowledge so people are particularly well positioned to do health stuff (laughs) uh, as opposed to other stuff but i'll you know basically those key skills that are developed through inquiry are very transferable to any any potential both professional situation and non-professional situations um but also the 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 breadth of the interdisciplinary health knowledge is such that students can come out of this program and function in a lot of different health related contexts very effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there you know sometimes people say, oh, it's a pre med program. It's not a pre med program. I mean, lots of our students do go on to medicine or a mm-hmm. health program. I get why people say that, um, but we're not oriented to getting people ready for med school. We are oriented to getting people ready to be active agents and problem solvers in the world and to give them a breadth of exposure to health disciplines so that they have a certain, like a foundational literacy in not only 
molecular biology and physiology, but also social determinants of health, also epidemiology and public health, also health mm -hmm. systems policy, understanding how all of, you know, at the micro macro levels, the, you know, the personal experience and how that impacts people's health, health, how stigma and, and oppression in, in influence people's health. So they, I think students in our program come away with, with a really holistic picture of what mm -hmm. health is. That's more than just the biomedicine of health. And that enables them to do all kinds of things. Um, and so lots of, so the thing is lots of our students do go on to do other degrees. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And I think part of where this myth comes from is that it's a useless degree because a relatively small fraction of our students go straight from BHSE into the workforce. Most students do go mm -hmm. on to education, but that's not because the degree is useless. Uh, it's partly because, uh, you know, our students tend to be fairly high achievers and they were probably going to go on to other education anyway, <laughs> no matter what undergraduate mm -hmm. Um, they have a thirst for learning. They want to learn some more. Um, also, you know, it's a it's a function of the current job market and economy that oftentimes demand more than an undergraduate degree. But, but we do have students who come out of BHSC. They don't go on to further formal education, and they work in all kinds of different health disciplines and health uh, activities, uh, whether it's in community health and public health and health promotion. Um, some become entrepreneurs, some people go into um, like working in hospital administration. I mean, there's any, mm -hmm. any number of things you can do with a BHSC degree on its own. I just think a lot of our students come out and they're like, I love learning. <laughs> I'm not ready to stop here. <laughs> I want to learn some more, right? And, and of course, by, you know, of course, it's a health program. Lots of our students want to be healthcare workers. Every, almost every healthcare profession requires an additional degree. So, all of those explain uh, why it's uh, relatively common, very common for our students to do more education. Not because the degree is useless. That's just that's just the the trajectory that most of our students are on. I think that's such an important thing to gesture to as well, because we often hear about, you know, BHSC is an easy program because all of the <laughs> students are high performing, and it's because they get caught older, so on and so forth. And it's like. No, no, we just so happen to be a group of students who also really just enjoy learning and pursuing like the extent of our capabilities. And that'll often reflect in how we perform in classes, even outside of the program that we're in. Totally. Yeah. At the time. Being. I mean, I've done a lot of analysis of that people, people have said that other times where they're like, oh, health size, you know, they just, they, oh, they just are given A's in their courses because it's so easy in health size. And obviously that's an alarming thing to hear when you're assistant to the program. That is not the impression you want people to have of your program. And, and so I go and look, look for the receipts. You know, what's, what's, is there evidence that that's the case? Um, and I've, I've done a lot of analysis over the years um, looking at grades in our courses and how students perform in other courses and that sort of thing. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's not the case. Um, you know, when, when BHSE students take courses in other faculties and other departments and other programs, they get high marks there too. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and when you look at a class, uh, like a BHSE class, that has a mixture of students in it. The average grade for health size students is higher than the average grade for other students in other programs. And again, I don't think it's because BHSE students are better, but, mm -hmm. you know, 
it's a extremely competitive program to get into. So the people who get here are very intellectually talented and very motivated. Lots mm-hmm. of them are looking ahead to a, you know, they're hoping to get into medical school or hoping to get into graduate school. So their their grades are important. So they're motivated to, you know, to be high achievers during university as well. And then, you know, within our health side classes, there's a lot of classes that they people experience where there's group work, where there's lots of feedback. And I'm like, well, is it really all that surprising that when you take high achieving students <laughs> who are highly motivated to get good grades, you give them lots of feedback and you ask them to collaborate. So you take a bunch of smart people working together and give them lots of feedback along the way. Of course they're going to do well. Like what What else would you expect the result? <laughs> True. Well, very wrong. You'd have to really ask yourself, what the hell am I doing as a teacher? Right. Um, so, yeah. So I, I know, I know that's the perception. Um, but like I said, uh, the, the evidence is just isn't there to support that. I mean, and, and the, I think and, another yeah. reason people sometimes think that is they're like, oh, health side courses don't have exams. They don't have tests. It's so easy. Well, I mean, there are health side courses that do have tests and exams, but it is less common than in a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't make it easy. <laughs> I mean, the kinds of things that you do no. instead of tests and exams are also demanding. Uh, they're just demanding in a different way. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you see... You know, if you're a student in a program that has lots of exams and you're like, oh my God, I've got five exams in the next eight days. And you look at a health size student, they're like, yeah, I've got two exams. And you're like, oh, your program's so easy. It's not, it's not so easy. I get, I get the emotional reaction, but that, that's not <laughs> what that means. <laughs> you know, the demands are just different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard in a different way. It's challenging in a different way. Um, and, and that's all for, um, uh, you know, in principle, like the program has been designed that way. So. Exactly. That's where you learn. You learn when you're, when you don't know, you learn when you're uncomfortable, you learn when you're pushed into situations of, 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 of being challenged. That's, and that's what we try and do. Yeah. I, I've always, whenever I have those discussions where someone is like, well, you don't have a lot of formal evals in the sense of exams. So it must be really simple and yeah. it must be a pretty laid back thing. And I'm sitting there like entrenched in papers and like miles deep in my notes. And I'm like, when, where was yeah. this explicitly made easy to you? Cause I think the difference to me is also seeing our retaining the information and the impact of the information after the fact. Like when I think yeah. back to having to prepare for no cats, for example, which is a type of evaluation that you'll have in your first year cell bio course, the amount well, that maybe. I can recall. Chari is always adapting that course. <laughs> you never know if that's going to happen next year or not, but that's what. As a TA the for the course. <laughs> no we have one them this year. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least for the incoming students, you guys, we will have them. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless Chari but... changes his mind. <laughs> he may. <laughs> unless in the middle, he pulls all of us TAs into a group and says, we've decided to cut it. What <laughs> happened? <laughs> I wouldn't put it past That's him. True. <laughs> That's true. That's a really good point. Okay. For as of the day of this recording, which is <laughs> like late August, they still exist. Yeah. So like when I compare how much I can retain from that compared to a friend of mine who's in engineering that did like first year calculus and how much they can go back and revisit those questions and actually answer them without having to restudy. Like the difference is huge in that I can with 
like not having reviewed my notes in a couple of months, approach it the exact same way, and if not better, then how they would approach that question a couple of months out where they wouldn't really know and they'd need some time to go back and review and things like that. Like, I think if anything, seeing the different types of evals that HealthSci have should kind of be a motivation to see why we do it that way. Because usually we're learning in a way that's more, not substantial, but more impactful, I suppose, long-term. I mean, I think one of the things that I think of when I'm thinking about inquiry-informed approaches to learning and 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 educational philosophies and, and, and the relative value of exams versus other forms of evaluation. I mean, I think probably in a lot of cases where you're doing inquiry-informed learning, a lot of the emphasis is more conceptual than it is mm-hmm. on, on, on coming away with details. You know, is it, we're, we're less, mm-hmm. we tend to be less worried about, do you know this detail, that detail, that detail, and more worried, do you understand the concept and can you use it? <laughs> is there something, you know, do you see value in what you've learned? Because if you see value in what you've learned um, and you can, and you are using it, you're going to remember it. Um, if you've only, mm-hmm. you know, memorized the stuff for the exam and then you don't have any ongoing sort of stimulation, you'll forget it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's part of it. But I think also inquiry, I mean, some of the seeds of of the contemporary educational movement around inquiry were recognizing the explosion of information in the world and the accessibility mm-hmm. of information in the world. And I think, you know, the people I'm thinking of, the uh, educators who were, you know, thinking about talking about this stuff were in like the 60s and the 70s and, you know, uh, probably only had a vague idea of what, what the reality mm-hmm. would be you're in 2023 and looking ahead right but but they had that sense that like having stuff having facts in your head isn't really as important now as it might have been 40 years ago or 100 years ago and any Mm -hmm. fact that you ever want to know you've got a tiny little box in your pocket that you can access the entire world's (laughs) information on in in seconds I mean that 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 was not the reality uh, at any previous point in human existence so mm-hmm. having stuff in your head that you know is less important now than it ever was before in, in the history of humanity. Um, but being able to ask good questions and be critical about what you encounter and and be able to understand what you read um, mm-hmm. and, and, and recognize the evolution and the change. And those are, uh, some of it is about skills. Do you have the skills to do this? But some of it is just about an attitude. It's about a sensibility about what is it to be a learner? What is the goal of education? What do I need to, what do I want to be able to do with this in the future? Uh, And, you know, again, Mm -hmm. when you think about the explosion of information and um, the the things that are, exist now that didn't even exist 10 years, you know, I think back to my undergraduate education, um, you know, I'm not that old, (laughs) but, you know, like, there's all kinds of stuff that is super important now that people hadn't even discovered, hadn't even understood um, when I was an undergrad. And so it wasn't that I learned facts in undergrad that was important. I learned a literacy, right? I learned a literacy in biology. I learned to understand how the language and the ideas and the sensibilities in that field so that even though I didn't learn about CRISPR, the technology because it didn't mm-hmm. exist. I didn't learn about, um, 
you know, small interfering RNAs because they hadn't been discovered yet. I learned the literacy around that so that when that technology did arise, I had the ability to understand and engage with it and, and, and get into it. And, and that, that, that emphasis is much more important uh, than, do you know this fact? Do you know that fact? Can you, can you engage with a body of knowledge? Um, can you ask good questions? Mm. Uh, that is a really undervalued, really under, I mean, I think so much of the time, other, other forms of education uh, ask students, uh, do you know the answer? And I think one of the mm -hmm. things that is important in inquiry-based education and informs the way a lot of our courses are designed and that informs our approaches to evaluation and explains why we don't have as many tests as exams is, is that inquiry-informed approaches tend to be less interested in whether or not you know the answer and tend to be more interested in what are the questions that you have? Can you ask good questions? Can you frame questions that are important and meaningful and will allow you to push push a problem forward or address something that's meaningful and important, not just, do you know X, Y, and Z? Um, and I think that that makes the challenges of a program like this, that is a different set of intellectual challenges than when you were just trying to learn something for the sake of, of, of an exam. 100%. And I will say it bleeds into how you approach. I mean, in my life, my personal life for sure has changed because you find yourself asking those questions of why, how, and then like, to what extent is that relevant to X, Y, Z? But mm -hmm. even at like a personal level, it gives you a lot of introspective ability too. I think a lot of the courses, especially in first year, kind of push you to look at yourself and, and yeah. see how you're doing and approach things differently. Um, like it really does just impact every single facet. I think if you allow it to, because you Absolutely. are asking the questions instead of just being like, I think you're just put in more of a directive role of your learning than you yeah. ever really have been. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful, cool thing that so many people have to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, I forget where this expression comes from, but the, the expression is like, wherever you go, there you are. Like you are mm -hmm. always you are always going to see the world through your own eyes. There's no other option, right? Like, so um, none of us humans has any other option other than to see the world through our own eyes. And it's going to be slightly different for all of us. So what matters to each of us is different. Uh, the questions that are important to each of us are going to be different. How we learn is different. Um, and so the idea that there's some one size fits all goal for learning is also problematic right like no like mm -hmm. what what one individual learns what individual needs is going to be different than every other individual and I think one of the things that is really important and, and an important opportunity uh, that a lot of people don't uh, don't realize don't even think of like it's not that they don't take the opportunity they don't it doesn't even occur to them to the opportunity that that thinking about these introspective questions, these reflective questions about myself, what's, why does this matter to me? That's not self-involved. That's, that's not unscholarly. <laughs> that's not, mm -hmm. um, that's not, um, it's actually, I think it's a really important part of being scholarly is, is subjecting yeah. your own, your own perspectives, your own, un understand your own motivations, understand your own perspective on the world so that you can better understand how that might differ from someone else's. That, that kind of introspection 
I think is an important part of learning and being scholarly. And I think it is relatively undervalued in, in a lot of places. That's really beautiful. And I agree. I think a lot of times you do it maybe without even realizing, but you are constantly mentally reassessing your own perspective on something, the impact that'll have on how you approach something else. And it, it does definitely open the door to approach discussions differently, I feel. Like the way that yeah. I experience the world and the things that have occurred in my life, even in, let's say, like the last year, will totally differ the perspective I have compared to someone else. And it's so yeah. hard for you to sit there and think about why that is until mm -hmm. you're willing to ask yourself these kind of leading questions into you know, the impact that it's had, that sort of thing. Yeah. And to say that's a question that's worth spending some time on. <laughs> that's a worth, that's a, that's a, that's a set of, of, of a, a line of thinking that is, is worth investing in. It's, it's, it's important. It, it is valuable to do that. Um, it's not just a nicety. It's not just navel gazing. It's not just, you know, I think, I think it really is um, a, an important resource for people to be really effective really effective in the world in whatever in whatever way and I don't just mean that occupationally I just mean as a human being like what do you what do you want to do I don't mean what job do you want to have I mean what kind of person mm -hmm. do you want to be? You know what kind of a difference do you want to make that might be linked to your job but it's not just your job um yeah and so those kinds of questions uh are, are worth spending time on no I really love that we're gonna need to delve into this more in another episode mm -hmm. I entirely agree with you I think it's such a an impactful valuable thing that we really do need to give ourselves more credit for and like more time for I think because yeah. it's really easy to get swept up in what's your job gonna be etc yeah and yeah the, I mean it's so different even between like for example my brother and I like we have very different understandings of what we want our life to look like and what we want to do with our lives you know like his is more focused on I want a quiet life and I want to enjoy <laughs> time with my family and I'm like I want to change the way that we approach xyz thing yes. at a societal level <laughs> it's like awesome cool. both awesome <laughs> exactly both legitimate <laughs> Exactly. But I think if you don't give yourself the time to think about why that's important to you, it's very easy to get riled up or swayed away that you don't expect yourself to and then go down yeah. in the very extreme scenarios, a path that you don't necessarily oh, align absolutely. yourself with yes. <laughs> at your core, yes. you know? Yes. Those senses of goals and what do I want? And, uh, you know, that's going to change over time. Maybe what you mm -hmm. want right now or for the next three months is very different from what you're going to want a year from now or that what you need in a given moment. Right. And so um, spending that time is like, does this make, does what I thought I wanted five years ago, is that still what I actually want? Does that still make sense? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't even make sense anymore. It's, it's, it's time well spent. Yeah. A hundred percent. But that, <laughs> as much as I want to dwell on this one, we're going to take it to our final myth okay. for now and touch on this another time for sure. Okay. But the final one, it's a little more relaxed, a little more of think I just a misconception more than anything than a myth. But it's that BHSC is a small program. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? We hear that all the time. And, uh, you know, oh, <laughs> why do you want to go to BHSC? Well, it's a small program, small, tight knit program. And I mean, 
for a long time, I would, I would describe, I would have described it that way too. Yeah, we're a small program, or I'd go to a, a meeting at the university and, and say, oh, this, well, this is how we do it in BHC. And, and people would say, well, you can do that. You're a small program. We're a big program. We can't do that. And at some point I thought, wait, wait, wait a second. We're not actually that small. Um, <laughs> and I went and I, I, I actually like looked at our numbers and looked at numbers of other programs. And I was like, you know, we take 240 students every year. Um, our total across four years is close to a thousand students. That's not a small program at all. Um, it's not a, you know, we are, we're not the biggest program at Premaster, but we are one of the bigger ones. We're definitely in the top third. And I think we're in the top five of the biggest programs at the university. We're not small, <laughs> um, but mm -hmm. I think there are certain aspects of the program that makes us feel tight-knit that give us a sense of community mm -hmm. that makes us feel like it's a small program even though we're not so I think some of it has to do with like you know every year of the program uh, our students are going to have at least one course that is quite small like under 20 students um, and mm -hmm. really get, really get a, a, to know your classmates and your instructors very very well uh, in at least one course per year if not more um, I think some of it comes from you know, the, the way that the culture of the program was established with an emphasis on community and like that we, we do want to, we see value in community, Both like there's an educational value is in community. We learn more mm -hmm. when we, when we understand ourselves to be a community, the, the inquiry requires collaboration so that itself incentivizes, you know, the kinds of behaviors and collaborative things that, that, um, that make community sensibilities emerge mm -hmm. um but also i mean i think a lot of a lot of the the people who are associated with the program you know like to kind of break down barriers around hierarchies and authority like most of our profs mm -hmm. are on a first name basis with with students um you know i think that's that's part of what makes it feel small um you know we often we people students often comment that they feel known not they're not just a number um mm -hmm. which is really which is really gratifying to hear that's our goal <laughs> so it's, it's nice it's nice to hear that students feel cared for um yeah um, and then I think the other piece of it is that you know the program was established is developed this reputation for being community and oriented and tight-knit and then the kinds of students who are attracted to BHC they're kind of students who like that and so mm -hmm. they join the program and they like that and so they contribute to the ongoing sustaining of that sensibility so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy you know like people who value community are attracted to the program so they value it so they create community and then it, it enhances the reputation the program has and it just carries on mm -hmm. so i think that's why we feel like a small program even though we're not yeah, and we also just tend to interlink ourselves a lot, I think, even between years. <laughs> the musical that we have, the fashion mm -hmm. show that we have every year, um, things like that too. But I, I think it's also just, you're right, when you have a program that's known for being so community-driven, you'll draw in people who want to expand that and make that yeah. their own and make themselves a place within it. And it, yeah. it's really, really beautiful to see too, because even coming in first year, inquiry and a lot of our other first year courses you are working with pretty small groups of students mm -hmm. and like by the end of it those are people like I think honestly our inquiry class like we all were like oh my god this is a little family 
away from yeah. home like it's yeah. just so nice to see and then you kind of carry that out and you also tend to see profs multiple times yeah. for some students throughout their you're time right. as well. so I hadn't thought about yeah, that like, but you're right so I mean of course like at some point even if you do, haven't had that prof before you've heard about them through someone else or yeah. your best friend has had them for like two years in a row and yeah. you really do just feel yeah known I think is the best way to put it and looked out yeah. for because you really know that it does want to see you succeed yeah and you're kind of given avenues to access that yeah I mean another thing I was just realizing is um for I think from the beginning of the program we've had a course called 4x03 and it used to be called peer tutoring and collaboration um mm -hmm. in the last few years we've um morphed that and evolved that and it's become part of our Praxis Pathways curriculum. So now it's 4XP3, but there's there's continuity with the old 4XO3. But one of the things that students do in their fourth year as part of 4XO3 or Praxis is they work in tutorial groups of small groups and um, they're not absolutely required to, but one of the things they can do is uh, develop some kind of an initiative to give back or mm. sustain community in some way. And things like the BHSC musical, the BHSC fashion show, um, uh, you know, other there are other things like that that are sort of have become entrenched in the BHSC student body as a sort of the culture and, and traditions of the program are things that came out of those four XO three initiatives. Uh, that's that's where the musical came from. Uh, you know, we had we had a student who, as part of her four XO three initiative, uh, developed a program that linked um, elementary school kids and seniors living in long-term care homes around uh, music and ukulele program. Uh, that, was mm -hmm. part of her that was part of her 4XO3 initiative um, that she continued. And now she is back as an alumnus and teaches a course called Music Health in the Community that, uh, <laughs> cool. that, continues, that continues that program that came out of her, came out of her 4XO3. So lo lots of things in that 4XO3 also uh, prompt students and, and um, catalyze uh, students to think about what can I do? What would I like to see as part of mm -hmm. this program? And uh, what do I want to, what do I want my legacy to be uh, to make this program even more um, that sense of community? So I think that's, that's another big contributor. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's that for sure. It's just the amount of experiences that you have and that you can create for other people to continue developing community for sure. And I wonder if it's also like the shared experiences that you have that are BHSC specific, like, I mean, inquiry is one that comes to mind, but so is, uh, like running simulated people practices yeah, yeah. or things like that. Yeah, you know, or like having a course where you all have to, I don't know, do group projects pretty much every single week. Like at that point, there's like you don't really have another option aside from becoming part of that community and that group. Yeah. Like yeah. there's certain kind of iconic there. iconic experiences that everyone <laughs> goes through whether in the same class or not whether in the same year or not like mm -hmm. you know you, you, there are certain kind of iconic things that people can relate to and and resonate with people who may have never met each other before and, and so even mm -hmm. you know you, you meet a BHSC grad who graduated 10 years before you were even here and there are certain experience certain shared experiences that you have yeah <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I wonder how many generations of alumni I have to go back to be like, this is where Chari <laughs> first started yes. teaching. Chari's <laughs> been teaching, I think, since near the beginning, um, since near the start. He mm -hmm. was gone for a couple of years, but then came back. Um, 
but you know what next year uh, uh next year year after next 2025 is our 25th anniversary um and so we are we are starting to plan our anniversary celebrations and lots of alumni will come back so i think we'll be able to to do some of those things and uh and find some of those places where like what are the what are the iconic things that that people that people uh, you know collectively um resonate around when they when they think of BHSC across the the generations across the cohorts for today and for the time being admissions wise a little bit introspection wise and sort of leaning into what the program vibe is like when you first come in that's kind of the end of our Mythbusters admissions edition um, there will be more in the future that are either based on things like you know the program specifically once you're in it the end goal of the program, which we sort of touched on today, any number of things. By any metric, all you need to know is Stacy will be back because I love <laughs> having her on. And it's also super fun to just have such an important representation, I'd say, of the program, you know, here and for people to listen to and to speak to. Maybe we'll do a Q&A episode at some point. Oh, yeah, for sure. We could do you. an Ask Me Anything kind of episode. <laughs> yeah, I think and there's yeah. any number of myths we could still left, we could still bust. <laughs> there's, a, there's a deep <laughs> well of myths to bust. So <laughs> We need to make an iceberg of just this is the top level ones, which is, I think, what we yeah. scraped out today. <laughs> and yeah. like slowly work our way all the way down. But Sounds good. the one thing, I'll, I'll ask you this and we'll leave it at that. But if you had to, in one sentence, Give your advice to a new cycle applicant for admissions. What would it be? One sentence. Well, as you could tell mm -hmm. from the last hour, I'm not good at <laughs> saying just a small <laughs> amount. Um, I think, can I use a colon? Yes, you can use a colon because <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> be yourself, colon. Think about what you have to say not what you think we want to hear. You heard it here first, folks. Put a little, the rights symbol right beside it when we put a quote anywhere. <laughs> Get it printed on a t-shirt somewhere too. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, thank you so much for coming on. Again, we'll definitely have you on in the future. And for anyone who's listening, keep your eye out for future episodes because now that BWB is out into the world. It's showing no signs of stopping. So you'll have new episodes um, out on our Instagram. You'll hear more about that schedule and things like that. But thank you guys so much for listening. And we hope to see you all next time. Oh, we're done. That was fun. That was fun. Oh. <laughs>